And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you guys remember Muhammad Ali? I put the new picture on. Uh, that's him standing over Joe Frazier. It's an iconic shot there. Uh, you know, why am I got this? Wrong book. Good book, but wrong book. Uh, yeah. What was, what was his famous line? Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he likes, say, he likes saying this more. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. <clears throat> Just before takeoff on an airline flight, the stewardess reminded Ali to fasten his seatbelt. Uh, Superman don't need no seatbelt, Ali told her. Well, the stewardess retorted, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> Ali put on his seatbelt. Now, no one would mistake uh, Muhammad Ali's braggadocious attitude as a Christian virtue. Humility and selflessness are the hallmarks of the believer in Jesus Christ. Since, since we know this, uh, it seems incredible that the apostles would get into this silly debate over who was to be the greatest, especially when you consider the setting that I just mentioned. He's just instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is the night before Jesus is going to go to the cross. Uh, as I said, he had just announced that one of the twelve would betray him, betray him, and the disciples responded by discussing who would do such a thing, and each one asked, surely not I. Perhaps this led someone to say, well, I know that I'm not a likely, not a likely candidate, and someone else said, me neither. Another said, well, it couldn't be me. Somebody else says, why not? Do you think you're better than the rest of us? And things at that point got out of hand, and they had this little squabble. This wasn't the first time that the 12 had gotten into this sort of silly debate. Back in uh, Mark's gospel, <clears throat> they had argued about the same matter while walking at some distance from Jesus, assuming that he couldn't hear them. He may not have heard them, but he knew what they were discussing. And he took that opportunity to teach them about childlike humility. On another occasion, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked that his, her sons, James and John, sit on his right and left when he came again in his kingdom. Well, the other disciples were indignant. What right did these two brothers have to claim the top spots in the kingdom? Well, Jesus taught them that the greatest should become the servant. And the one who wishes to be first should be the slave or the servant of all. He went on to say, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But in spite of these repeated lessons, here they were again, right on the eve of the Lord's death, arguing over which of them was the greatest. Now, this shows us, although we can have this lesson in our head, it takes a while to get to our heart for us to put it into practice. We think that we've learned it once for all, and man, it would be great if that were the case, but it's not. All of a sudden, somebody does something that bugs us, and we think, well, I'm a better servant of Christ than they are. Although we, we may not get into a verbal debate, that thought is often in our heart, I'm greater than he is, or I'm greater than she is. We all have to keep coming back to this fundamental lesson. The greatest in God's sight are those who humbly serve. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak this truth into our hearts. Uh, Lord, uh, the world teaches us to look for greatness in a bunch of dis different places. And it doesn't look like what Jesus said greatness truly looks like. So, Father, help us in this. We want to be your servants. Father, give us hearts to do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a lesson for all who are actively serving Christ, and we must continuously apply it. Like I said, it's not something you do once and you're good for life. It would be great if it's that way, but it's not. But this also applies to Christians who are sitting on the bench, who are not involved and in, in engaged in serving the Lord in some way. The Bible clearly teaches that every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift and is to employ it in serving others. Now, being a servant of Christ is more than just signing up to teach a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, although that is very good and it's needed, um, or to do any other job that we might assign or ask you to do at church. Being a servant is a mindset. It's where each day you make yourself available to Christ and, and ask Him to use you in His service in whatever way He chooses. And it can look very different person to person and even for that person, day by day, it may look different. It, he may ask you to speak a, a word about the Savior to somebody who needs to know Him. Uh, it may, may be to offer cheerful help to someone that's in need. It may be to listen to a person who needs sympathy or understanding. Whatever the job is, it doesn't matter. Your daily attitude is, Lord, hear my... You remember Isaiah? He sees the vision and, and God poses a question just for Isaiah and he talks among himself. He says, well, who shall we send? For us, you know, that's, that's the Trinity talking to themselves. Who shall we send for us? And, and uh, Isaiah, after seeing God and after uh, having his tongue's, tongue touched with the, 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 the coal from the altar, he raises his hand and says, here I am, send me. That's what we are to be like every day. Uh, if you're not living in that way, then you're probably living for self and not for Christ. It is so easy to do especially in our world. Now, our text brings out four things that I want to look at concerning servanthood. First, number one, the great example of servanthood is Jesus Christ. Luke presumably did not know about, and so he did not record uh, for us this particular event, but John does. In John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11, he reports that at some time during that Last Supper, Jesus got up, he girded himself with a towel, he took a basin of water, and what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. Jesus is our great example of servanthood. I want you to note four things here. First, A, Jesus faithfully served, although he alone deserves eternal supremacy. Have you ever gone out at night and looked into the sky? And you can do it here better than you can in Tallahassee. But you see just the gazillions of stars, right? That's a picture of our Milky Way, the ga our galaxy. And what's interesting is, uh, this will be a two-minute side here, God put us, put Earth in the Milky Way galaxy so that if we look back, it's a spiral galaxy, and that's the spiral. You can see it right there. If you look back, you can actually see our galaxy, but if you look the other way, the opposite direction of our galaxy, you can see other galaxies. God was gracious in doing that. Now, here's the truth. The Hubble telescope can't even see the end of the some, 
they, they estimate between 200 billion and a trillion galaxies. Did you know that there are approximately 5,000 times more stars than there are grains of sand on the entire earth? Now, I didn't do that calculation. Scientists did. So for every grain of sand, you're talking 5,000 stars that God created. It's unbelievable. Jesus, okay, in multiple places, we learn that he is the author of creation. He's the one that brought about all of this. He spoke the entire universe into existence with simply the word of his power. Peter, James, and John, you remember Matthew 17, got a good glimpse of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happened to them? They were awestruck. Later on the Isle of Patmos, John, the Apostle John, who had laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, he got a further revelation of Christ in his heavenly glory. This is Revelation chapter 1. And his response was not to say, oh, hi, Lord, good to see you again. No, he fell down as a dead man at the feet of Jesus. This Lord of glory left the splendor of heaven and took on human flesh so that he could accomplish our salvation. He rightly could have come in all of his glory, all of his splendor, all of his majesty, demanding our instant allegiance. And if he came that way, guess what? People probably would have given him. Well, instead, he took on the form of a servant. Paul tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Christ's willingness to serve did not in any way rob him of the ultimate authority that will be his. Matter of fact, in our passage in verse 29, he states, My Father has granted me a kingdom. He's coming again, and he will conquer all of his enemies and rule over all the earth. But in God's sovereign plan, although he deserves and one day will have ultimate supremacy, the first time he came to earth, he came as a humble servant, simply to show us how we should serve him and serve others. He's our great example. Now, if Jesus, who deserved ultimate supremacy as the almighty creator, if he willingly served, then shouldn't we who deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation, shouldn't we offer ourselves in faithful service to God? Well, B, Jesus faithfully served through many trials and temptations. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, and you are those who stood with me in my trials. Now, when you read right over that, you, you think, well, that's not an unusual verse. We all know that Jesus was tried when the devil tempted him in the wilderness. You can go back to Luke 4 and Matthew 4, both. He's driven out there by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And, uh, but then we also know that about his awful trial that he went through in Gethsemane, where he literally uh, sweat drops of blood. And, uh, and what followed, of course, uh, you know, the mock trial before the Sanhedrin and ultimately his crucifixion. But we tend to think, but, but between those two terrible events, the Gethsemane and the, and the desert wilderness temptation of Satan, that everything was smooth sailing for Jesus. But the disciples weren't standing with Jesus in either of those events. Think about it. When he was tempted, he had not yet chosen the 12. All right? He had just got baptized, and the Holy Spirit drove him out. And then um, 
they all fled. They all deserted him in his hour of final trial. So they weren't even there. So Jesus is referring to trials or temptations that took place in the time in between those two recorded times of trial. So all throughout his ministry. After Jesus had successfully resisted uh, Satan in the wilderness, we read that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. Although Jesus did not have a sin nature tempting him from within, as we do, he was perpetually bombarded from without by the great enemy of our souls. If Satan could bring Jesus down, then salvation, God's salvation would be thwarted. Although it was impossible for the Son of God to sin, don't get the idea that it was some mock battle that he fought. Satan continually dangled before Jesus ways to escape the cross. He tempted him to exert his power and his authority apart from God's plan. That's all it would take is for him to do something other than what God deemed necessary and right. But in spite of all these temptations, Jesus faithfully humbled himself and serve the Father's, Father's purpose even to the point of death. Now, there are many Christians who, who will serve God as long as there's no opposition and things are going relatively smoothly. But what about when criticism or opposition comes? What about when we are treated unfairly? What about when we are misunderstood or when people question our motives? Do we keep serving then? Or do we quit with a protest? Well, if that's the kind of treatment I get for serving, then I'm out of here. I, I'm not going to serve. Someone else can serve. Well, Jesus is our great example of serving faithfully even through many trials. We'll see Jesus faithfully served, though lonely and misunderstood. You've got to understand, Jesus is different than us. The disciples had stood with Jesus up to this point, even through some intense opposition. Jesus also knew that in just a short while, they would forsake him and flee for their lives. Well, even now, not even Peter, James, and John uh, could enter into the anguish that Jesus would face in the garden. They just didn't get it. Jesus had to face his final trial alone. But as he told them in the upper room, which John records for us in John, in John 16, he says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come, and you are to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Commenting on what he calls Jesus' profound loneliness, Alexander McLaren states, The more pure and lofty a nature, the more keen its sensitivity, the more exquisite its delights, and the sharper its pains. The more loving and unselfish a heart, the more its longing for companionship, and yet the more its aching in loneliness. Remember what I told you, Jesus is different from us. The psalmist knew this. All right, this is, this is a prophetic uh, psalm, Psalm 69, that is looking forward to the Messiah, to Christ. And this is the Messiah speaking, saying, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Yet in spite of the loneliness, in spite of being misunderstood, Jesus faithfully served 
the Father's purpose. Now, his fellowship with the Father was the sustaining factor when no one else understood. You know, Paul went through something very similar. He talks about it in, at the end of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, uh, no one stood with me when I was on trial, but the Father stood with me and used me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's talking about man. He said, nobody was here. They all deserted me when I went to trial. He says, but God stood with me. That was Jesus. Nobody stood with him. He had to go through it alone. Well, in this, we, we see Jesus as our great example. When we are called to serve him, even when we feel lonely and misunderstood, we do it because God is still with us. Well, D, Jesus, he, he faithfully served because of his great love for us. Christ's amazing love is the only explanation for why he would leave the glory of heaven and submit himself to all of the abuse and the hardship that he went through simply to secure our salvation. Just before Jesus girded himself with that towel and began that, that lowly servant's task of washing the disciples' feet, John 13, 1 states that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the uttermost or loved them to the end. The Apostle Paul was driven by this same love of Christ. He said that the life he now lived in the flesh, he lived by faith in the Son of God. And then he adds, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In that great eighth chapter of Romans, Paul reaches a crescendo when he reflects on God's great love in Christ. He states that even if we are put to death for Christ's sake, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He goes on to say, nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from the what? Love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just as Christ served because of his great love for us, and Paul served because he was so captivated by that love, so we should serve because of Christ's love for us and for our love for him. God's love as seen in Christ, especially in his sacrificial death there on the cross, that is the great motive for anything and everything that we do in service for him, period. Jesus Christ is our great example of servanthood. Well, number two, the great enemy of servanthood is self it's us. <laughs> the disciples' squabble at the beginning of our passage, that came from one source, self. Uh, uh, James asks this question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This is James 4.1. And he answers, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So selfish desire leads us into conflict with one another. Now, that's why Jesus spells out the beginning requirement if you wish to follow him. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. But denying self isn't a once and for all decision that we make and then get on with life. As I said earlier, that would be really nice if we defeated self once and it was done. But it's not. We never obliterate it. It's there and it always raises its head. It keeps raising its ugly head even in people that have been trying to kill the monster for years. Even the most mature saints constantly have to do battle with self. There are three things that I want us to see about self. A, 
Self reveals itself in pride. You'd think that right after the Lord's Supper, this sort of dispute wouldn't break out among these apostles, but it did. Pride and selfishness, which, which are related, they're the most common and troublesome problems that we face. Um, in the next section, Peter's pride comes through as he protests that he's ready to die for Jesus. You see, Peter trusts his own commitment more than he believed Jesus' word. And we know the turnout, right? Jesus, uh, Peter did deny. Well, if these men who walked in close relationship with Christ could fall into the pride of proclaiming their own greatness right after the institution of the Lord's Supper, then guess what? We are certainly not immune either. In the words of Isaac Watts, he says, we must pour contempt on all our pride if we want to be servants of the Lord Jesus. Will be self reveals itself in competition. How many of you are competitive? Now, listen, in the first service, we had about 50 people, and I said, how many are you competitive? And I raised my hand. Nobody else raised their hand. And I just says, what? And when I said that, then about 49 hands went up. It's like, yeah, thank you. Don't leave me hanging like that. How many of you are competitive? Yeah, it's kind of the way we are. I'm the greatest apostle. Uh, you are not. I am. Oh, you're both wrong. I am the greatest apostle. These men were doing what men by nature do, competing for first place. Our American culture is especially competitive. That's how you get good grades. That's how you get scholarships. That's how you get to college. You perform better than other students, right? That's how you get ahead by business, in, in business, by competing with others for customers. Sports teams win championships by competing and com uh, uh, conquering the opposing teams. We live in a seething climate of competition. Now, I noticed the opposite of this when I was in Togo, all right? If you're not in the big cities, everywhere you go, it's always two-lane roads, and they don't have 20-foot, uh, you know, wide roads or however ours are. They're, they're not wide. They're, they're, you, you could fit two good-sized vehicles on. I mean, they're just not big roads. And everywhere we, I, we were in a 15-passenger van, and it's not like our 15-passenger. They're they're smaller. So you are cramped in there. We've got about six or seven foot of luggage on top of it. And we're on a, about a 12, 13 hour trip. And they always set me right in the front. Sonny, our driver, was here. I'm in the middle. And David is right here. He's, he's the head guy of mentor leaders. And so we're going along. And it's not unusual at all to come along behind a slow car or particularly a slow truck. And so Sonny doesn't even look. He's on this side right here. He just, well, he does kind of look, but then he just pulls out. And the first time he did it, it scared me to death because there was a car just a couple hundred yards away. And I'm like, that's not enough time for him to make it. How many of you have ever tried to pass somebody around here and they speed up, making you back up and get in place like, mm, got you, right? Well, in Togo, they don't do that. The, the person that's being passed scoots over as far as they can get. The person that sees it coming gets over as far as he can get, and they pass three wide on a two-lane road. They, they, they cooperate rather than compete. Now, I never got used to it. <laughs> I was scared every time. It's like, what if they're not watching? We're going to hit these people head on. 
But there was, that, there was just that spirit of cooperation rather than competition. Now, in the church, I think we need to work at cooperating and being careful not to compete. Think about it just in the county. Is there another church that's doing better than us? Are they preaching the gospel? Praise God. That means our side is winning. All right? Well, C, self is modeled for us in worldly leadership. Jesus describes worldly leadership where the top man lords it over others and then demands the title of benefactor as if he's good for them and he's been lording it over them. And then Jesus states, but not so with you. Worldly leadership is not a model for biblical leadership. Biblical leadership doesn't lord it over people even though at times it, it, it must exercise authority. Biblical leadership doesn't demand recognition and status. It doesn't pay attention to titles. It doesn't use its position for personal advantage at others' expense. In all of these areas, worldly leadership models selfish men seeking selfish advantage. Biblical leadership models servanthood, even at the cost of personal sacrifice or inconvenience. Now, I just thought of something, and I'm going to say it before I forget, and I forgot earlier. I just wanted to thank everybody that came out yesterday for our work day. Um, uh, uh, Dwayne and Lisa uh, got two rooms floored. Okay, so that's all finished. All of our we're all floored over there. Uh, Craig and uh, John Hayes did a bunch of cleaning out of stuff that just needed to be thrown away. They spent five hours doing that. The one I'm proudest of is Miss Sandy, Miss Sandy Hayes. She spent five hours in our copy room doing some of the most tedious work you will ever do. I have printed up our directories. There's eight, well, 16 pages, eight back-to-back. -back. So there's eight pages. Two at a time, facing the right way, have to be stuffed in those plastic see-through things. She did that for five hours. And, and I told her, I said, look, this is tedious work, but it's air-conditioned. And she's like, okay. So she got that. We, we still have a little bit more to go. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to everybody that participated uh, yesterday. Um, that's servanthood, okay? Just serving. But our great example of servanthood is Jesus Christ. Now, who's our great enemy of servanthood? Self ourselves. Well, number three, the great encouragement to servanthood is Christ's grace in spite of our sins. Even though Jesus must have been grieved over this repeated petty quarreling among the apostles, even though that he knew that they would all forsake him and flee in just a few hours, he gives them this gracious word of commendation and, uh, that they have stood with him during his trials. And, and he goes on to encourage them by promising them great rewards for them in his coming kingdom. John 1.16 says that we have all received grace upon grace. And I would add, upon grace and upon grace. If you have failed the Lord in your attempts to serve him, he wants you to hear this word of grace. He wants you to turn from your sin and failure and to serve him again with a glad heart. He's kind of like a father who's trying to teach his young child to do some new task. The child may fail, may not do it perfectly, but the dad sees one little thing that the child does right. 
And he says, that's the way. Keep it up. You're getting the idea. Likewise, God's grace always encourages us to continue on. Well, number four, the great enjoyment of servanthood is to have fellowship and service with Christ throughout eternity. This is, this is the whole shebang that we're talking about here. Here he promises the disciples that they will eat and drink at his table in his kingdom, and they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in light of their recent dispute, oh, I'm the greatest, in light of their impending failures, they're all going to scatter and flee and deny Jesus. This promise is sheer grace. The fact is, the Lord will reward every one of his servants far beyond what we deserve. Nobody's going to get to heaven and think, you mean I sacrificed and worked so hard for this measly little reward? No. We're all going to think, God has been far more gracious and generous to me than I could ever deserve. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the Lord means in terms of the apostles' future rewards. Paul says that the saints will judge both the world and the angels. Apparently, the apostles will have a leading role in that task. Now, eating and drinking at Jesus' table, that's a picture of the joyous fellowship that awaits all of us when we're in His presence. If we could see now what He has prepared for us then, we would all be, as Paul says, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. If you want to meditate on something, that's something to meditate. If we could see now what He has prepared for us then, we would be much more ready <laughs> for whatever the world throws at us in terms of opposition and persecution against the name of Christ, if we could just see it. Any inconvenience, any hardship that you endure now in serving Christ, it's going to reap blessing upon blessing upon blessing in that great day when the kingdom comes. Well, I read about a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they have a hand-lettered sign over, there's only one entrance into the sanctuary or out, there's only one door, and the sign says, Servant's Entrance. There isn't any way in or out of that church except through the service door. That's how every church should be. It's a place for servants only. Now, who's the greatest in God's kingdom? It's not Muhammad Ali. It's those who humbly serve as Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just another call to service and understanding that that is the essence of greatness is to serve one another. So God, I pray that you would just tender our hearts towards that. Help us to see it. Help us to understand it and embrace it and then to simply live it for your honor and for your glory. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you this morning to turn to Him. Uh, Jesus Himself said that no one can come to the Father, talking about God the Father, uh, unless uh, He comes through Jesus. So if you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you, you need to remedy that. You need to take care of that. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you even now, saying, yeah, you need that. Don't, don't run from that. Run to it. That is the Holy Spirit uh, prompting you 
Do, be obedient. Do what he says. If you're not sure what it means to, to, to follow Christ and, and, and to, to give your life to him, you come forward, talk to me. I'll sit down with Scripture and we'll look at what Scripture says about knowing and following Jesus. Uh, if you're a believer, I hope you've been challenged today just to consider your whole life. Are, are you a servant of Christ? And I don't mean, are you doing this one ministry? I maybe you are involved in this one ministry, and that's great. And God, I hope, hopefully, has called you to that ministry. I'm talking about that servant attitude where you wake up every morning and say, thank you, God, for, for another night's rest and another day that I might serve you and the people you put in front of me. That's a servant attitude. That's the attitude. That was, atti that was Jesus' attitude his whole, his whole life. It needs to be our attitude too. What can you do to serve God and serve others? Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.